Welcome to New Hope Church's teaching series podcast. This week, we continue in our series on Luke's gospel with a special experiential service led by New Hope's beloved community. The following message was recorded at our in-person services on Sunday, January 30th, 2022. Hi, New Hope. Hi, hi, thank you. Hi to our online community as well. We're glad you're listening wherever you find yourselves this morning. If you're new here this morning, my name is Denise Douglas. I'm one of the pastors here at New Hope, which I consider to be a great privilege. Can I open with just a question for you to think about? Have you ever in your lifetime said something in a crowd or maybe in around a, a meeting table or perhaps around the holiday dinner table that your words just kind of like, oh, you know, yeah, fell like a lead balloon. Some of you can identify. Good, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Today in our scripture passage that we're going to look at, Jesus goes from beloved hometown boy to an infuriating radical in 16 verses or less. Jesus knows a thing or two about having his words drop like a lead balloon. The Gospel of Luke, as both pastors uh, John and Mike have mentioned, is often called the Gospel of the Great Reversal. We see in this book that lost things are found, that illness turns into wellness, that wrongs are made right, and that death becomes life. Those are such beautiful themes to all of us now that we are this far away from that time and from the reversal happening. But I got to let us in on a secret that when reversal is going on in the moment, if you had been there in those moments, sometimes they create some angst and some uh, uncertainty and even some fury as we're going to see today. In Luke chapter 4, where we're headed in just a minute, Jesus has just been out in the wilderness. You remember the, the Spirit led him there. He was there for 40 days, and he has come back. And this says he came back filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Luke 4. We're going to look at verse 14 through 30. It's a bit of a long passage, so I'm going to read at a speed that Mike, Mike Stern taught me that you can listen to audio books at 1.5, okay? So I'm going to try to use a 1.5. We're going to go through this pretty quickly, so buckle up. Here we go, Luke 4. Then Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. And the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And then he rolled up the scroll and he handed it back to the attendant and sat down. And all eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. And then he began to speak. He said, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. And everyone spoke well of him and was amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked. 
isn't this Joseph's son? And then he said, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Meaning do miracles here in your hometown the way you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to one of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha, but only one named Naaman was, uh, only one was healed, Naaman, a Syrian. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built, and they intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Now understand, this is at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. I don't know, but my guess is when when John came to candidate at New Hope, if y'all had run him out of the front doors at the end of his first sermon, my guess is the elders probably would not have had him come back, right? So some people are looking at this start to Jesus' ministry and going, oh, my word is going to be doomed from the very beginning. Jesus uh, is brand new to his teaching role. John, let me say this, John doesn't hesitate now, seven years in, right, to say the difficult thing to us sometimes. And we'll listen because he's he's developed the credibility for us to listen. But Jesus is here at the beginning in his hometown where he's been a carpenter and now he's beginning to teach in the synagogue. And the people are, at first, they're liking what he's saying. And they're saying, wow, hey, didn't we see Mary change his diapers? Isn't this the kid that, that Joseph would shake his head over when he was trying to teach him how to use a hammer? Isn't he the one who ran in and out of our homes with our sons and our daughters? Luke indicates that they're amazed at the beauty of his teaching and the grace of his words. And this moment in the synagogue that day was a spirit-filled moment. They knew that something significant was happening, and they looked at him intently. But in a hot minute, they'd be ready to throw him off the cliff. Why is that? Why is that in Luke's version it's not as some have speculated that Jesus claimed the messianic prophecy of Isaiah that he claimed that as his identity no they're still in wonderment as he has said that it's what Jesus says next that begins a stir in the crowd that then turns into a furious angry threatening mob and basically what Jesus says is this, he says, God's prophets have never been able to do the work of God among their own people, and neither will I be able to. Those who are expecting the Messiah to be all about Israel's restoration to power and position, all of a sudden find his words really disconcerting. What? How dare this young whippersnapper condemn our ancestors and lift up the foreigner 
among us. Mike talked last week about how the Messiah who was, the Messiah who is, challenged people's expectations. And that in the midst of of reversals, things can just go a little wonky and people are unsure and we're uncertain. And even John the Baptist had his doubts and wondered about things. That's because reversals shake things up. They go against status quo. And not a one of us, myself included, usually welcome that. We want to push against it. But reversals can usher in even confusion in the middle of while it's happening. But what I would say to all of us is that if it is a reversal from God, it will settle into all the right places and lead us forward on a better path. But it will be costly. Reversals always are costly. Jesus pushed outside the walls, outside the boundaries of God's chosen people again and again, didn't he? Now, did he love Jerusalem? Did he love God's chosen people? Oh, my, did he love them. We see in the Gospels how he wept over their refusal to let him gather them up and invite them into a better life and a better path forward. At the same time that he loved Jerusalem and its people, he would also make sure that his ministry established and brought clarity to the fact that God's kingdom extends to every human being. That God has chosen everyone, that shalom is for everyone, the prodigal son, the lost sheep, the Samaritan woman, and even the Roman centurion. Think with me for a moment about Mary, Jesus' mom. She actually grew up in a uh, less than desirable region in Galilee. There were then, as there are today, better places to live and maybe not so great places to live, right? Kind of a, uh, you're from the right side of the tracks or the wrong side of the tracks or somewhere in between. And Mary was from a place in Galilee, which was one of those in-between places. They had, uh, in Galilee, there was uh, so much influence, uh, Greek influences on their language and their culture. And so that was one of the things that made it kind of not so great. There are other checkpoints to consider for them if, the, if a person is superior or inferior. And I, we would never use those words with people today, would we? But we typically just kind of do it. We kind of size people up and we have a little checklist and we do it without even thinking, which is why it's so important to stop sometimes and do some thinking. What are the checklists? For them, there was, yes, where people lived. Language was a checkpoint. How often they went to temple was a checkpoint. Whether they lived in Jerusalem or in a place of mixed ethnicity. Galilee, where Jesus spent much of his time and where he called almost all of his disciples, was a place considered inferior to Jerusalem and Judea. Remember Nathaniel's question to Philip. When Philip, at the beginning of the Gospels, he was so excited, and he came and he found his friend Nathaniel, and he said to him, we have found the Messiah, and his name is Jesus, son of Joseph, and he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's first reaction is, what? Can anything good come out 
of Nazareth? Today we use a term called othering. It's a rather new term. It was new to me in this last year, year and a half. And what it means is to negate someone's humanity, their worth, because they do not fit in the checklist of the dominant culture. Those othered are seen as less worthy of dignity and respect, maybe just a little bit or maybe a whole lot less. Nathaniel was othering anybody that came from Nazareth. That's exactly what was going on in this passage. He hadn't even met Jesus, but because he knew where he was from, it colored his perception of, of if this person could do any good for their people or not. But this man from Nazareth, he would challenge and reverse almost everything Nathaniel had thought about in the way of, of how God interacted with his world. This man from Nazareth, the wrong side of the tracks, would challenge and reverse what Nathaniel would think about other people and about the Messiah. Anytime people are seen as the in-group and then there's an out-group, if the in-group, the, the more deserving, the more chosen, and then there are the others who are just a little bit less deserving, less chosen, whenever we see that dichotomy, we will always find abuses, big and small. We use broad cultural terms today, such as tribalism or segregation, but if we bring it a little bit closer to home, we might have to acknowledge, I know I do, that there are ways every single day that I other people. We size people up, sometimes so blind to the fact of what we're doing as worthy or a little bit less than worthy due to several things. How about age? How about your health or gender or vaxxed or not vaxxed? Check, check, check. How about whether you're a conservative or a liberal? How about if you're a Trumper or a non-Trumper? How about if you're bum you've got a bumper sticker that says, go Biden, and another, and some of the rest of you have one that says, hey, go Brandon. Check, check, check. Worthy, oh, mm, a little bit less than worthy. We all have that tendency, but Jesus invites us in this passage to something completely different, invites us to end the hierarchy of human worth. What Jesus was doing in the synagogue that day was kind of holding up a mirror, and they didn't like it. They didn't like him doing that. And so one of the questions we ask ourselves, will we let Jesus just raise up a mirror? And he doesn't raise it up to go, oh, look at the way you look. He says, how, this is how you're looking, and I would invite you to look like Jesus, like me, like how I'm going to model and teach you about God himself. One of the beloved community members said of this Matthew 4 passage, she said, notice that Jesus was not thrown off the cliff when they pushed him out to the edge, but he walked back through the crowd and continued his mission. His message of forgiveness and mercy and grace and love would not be denied that day. Envision a love that walked through hate with all of its venom and fury 
and othering and stayed on course to fulfill God's purpose for humanity. Once she said this and I thought about it, the, you know who came to my mind as another person in our own history who walked through a furious crowd of hate and venom was little Ruby Bridges. One of the first um, African-American children to enter into an all-white school. And it is unbelievable if you've seen, uh, read about her story or seen a movie on her life that this little girl, I think she's kindergarten or first grade, and the hate that and the fury and the spitting on her. And I think of her doing her part also to, to fulfill the purpose of God in our country, in our times. Many people in the first century saw Rome as the enemy. And they spent so much time and energy hating anybody associated with Rome. And Jesus, not the Messiah they were expecting, but the Messiah who is, challenged them on that. And he said, guess what, you guys? Rome is not your enemy. The Samaritan is not your enemy. The Gentile is not your enemy. Sin is the enemy of every human heart. Sin is the enemy of every broken relationship. It is the enemy of nations. It's what divides. It creates hierarchies of worth that lead to abuse and oppression. Weeks ago, Pastor John uh, preached a beautiful message. I think this is one of his first in this Luke series. And he talked to us about being icons in the kingdom of God. Symbols, representatives, uh, worthy venerations of Jesus. And that's what we are invited to. Think, think with me for a moment about that angry crowd. One minute they love Jesus, one minute, the next minute they want to kill him. Think for me, with me about fury, about sudden venom, about choosing their own fury, their own way of thinking over the hope and promise of Jesus Christ and a united world through the person of Jesus. Where are we in that crowd? Where would we have been? We're going to explore that a little bit later. But, but here's what I want, to hear this, want us to hear this morning. When we are so quick to fury or disgust or walls go up. When we move into that space, we are unable to hear from God and we're unable to hear from each other. Physiologically, it's impossible because fury floods, chemically floods our systems and we're ready to fight or flight and we cannot hear, we cannot listen. I have appreciated so much uh, Pastor John's leadership during this time of this series encouraging us to find places of stillness before God. And I just, and that wasn't just for that one week, right? It's to continue to find those places of stillness and calmness that we can hear what God would have to say with us. Because when, when we get furious, which, come on, is, do we not live in kind of a furious society today? It sure feels like it to me. And whenever we enter that place, it puts us in danger of pushing someone, even someone like Jesus, off the proverbial cliff. Or maybe today we would say it puts us in danger of just canceling that person out, done with you, never going to listen to you again. 
Again, Jesus invites us to something different. What Jesus shared in the synagogue and throughout his ministry would sound to so many like some new, far out, and wrong story for their people. It was offensive to many. But in reality, it was the old, old story that Jesus was telling of a world that God had intended all along and will never leave unfinished. It is a story that God had invited his people to tell again and again of his love for the world and his inclusion and, his, and the access they all had to God. Sometimes Israel did that well and sometimes they did not. And sometimes the church has done that well and sometimes we have not. My friends at New Hope, we are committed to hear the Jesus story even when it's not what our camp not what our tribe is espousing. At New Hope, we're committed to hearing a new story for our day based on the old, old story. You know, the church has done so much good in our world, and there's so much to celebrate, isn't there? Wow, the way God has powerfully moved and redeemed and, and helped our whole globe with education and hospitals. We've done great things. And church, we just, that's great. We're going to do that. We're going to always celebrate it. And at the same time, we're going to say, yeah, and we've made some mistakes. And we're going to own it. Amen. Amen. We simply have to admit that we get swept along in the loudness of our times. And I don't think there's ever been a louder time than the one we're in right now. James in the book of, in the New Testament book says, be quick to, be quick to listen and slow to speak. At New Hope, we are committed to acknowledging our mistakes, committed to these values, the value of confession, and lament, forgiveness, and grace. We're committed to being a safe place for everyone to practice those values. And we're committed, as it says on our justice page, to partnering with God. And what a privilege is that to say, God, we want to partner with you. Help us make wrongs right in this world. We want to be a part of that great ongoing reversal of the gospel. Well, a year ago, our justice team was tasked with the ministry of pulling together a team, oh, that would listen well and lean in to the topic of racial tension and racial healing. There are eight people on this team, and we all went into it, or if we didn't go into it knowing, we learned really quick that to be willing to do this work is to be willing to be uncomfortable. It is willing to not be the smartest person at the table. It's willing to say awkward things. It's willing to get offended and be offended and stay at the table with grace. So I want you to know that I am so extremely proud of the eight people who have said, absolutely, we're going to stay at the table and do this hard work. We don't do it perfectly. And church, I want you to know that there are a variety of opinions and approaches of the eight people that serve on this team. So don't think that's just a side team that they all think alike. We are not. And we're going to invite you in to be part of the beloved community and we're going to offer every once in a while just next steps to explore these kind of topics 
with us. One of the first ways that we're going to do that is invite you into a small group experience beginning towards the end of February. You can actually go to our website under events and indicate your interest. It is a proven curriculum called the Colossian Way, a 10-week group series that will help us love God, love one another while engaging the challenging issues of our time in a way that reflects faithful obedience to the person of Jesus. You can get details and get registered. Um, Pastors Mike Stern and myself and Andrea Cook will be leading that experience. So come on board. We can't actually do it with everybody thinks alike. So we really need you. If you're sitting there thinking, man, I think so differently than you do, then come on, please. Okay, because we have to have a variety of, of thoughts. We are all part of the beloved community of Christ, and we want to learn together. Okay, it is now my honor to introduce two women I am privileged to call friend and colleague. They are the chair and the co-chair of the beloved community, Erica Pruitt and Andrea Cook, and they have poured their lives working, serving in not only inside the church, but have made an amazing impact in the broader community. They're going to come up and help us personalize what it looks like to be othered or to do othering. We probably do both more often than we think. But while they're getting ready to come up, we're going to watch a quick TikTok video just to make you giggle a bit and to say, yeah, we've probably all prayed that prayer before. So watch that and come on up. Hey, God. Yeah. Hey, it's me again, Missy. Hey, honey, how are you? Listen, um, I, when you said love thy neighbor, you can't mean these ones, these ones down here. You can't mean some of these people. You did? Honey, some of the, they're, they're awful. They're, they're really terrible. I can't, what's that? Created in your image. So how many people have said that exact same prayer? I know I have. <laughs> There's so much sin in the world. So many horrific things going on. Often I find myself in disbelief about where the world is going, blaming and making assumptions. Today we're going to go further into othering, and we're going to start by me telling a little bit about my story. I was born in Portland, Oregon, a city and a state with a very racist history. In 1844, the first black exclusion law stated that blacks who tried to settle in Oregon would be publicly whipped. We'll not have time to delve into the racist history of Oregon today, but it provides a very important backdrop to my story. My family has journeyed through the migration of blacks who traveled from the south to work in the shipyards, the Vanport flood, redlining, displacement, gentrification, and the decimation of the black community as a result of the crack epidemic and the war on drugs. We as black people in this community understand what it means and feels like to be seen as less than, undervalued, objectified, othered. My mom, in 1973, was the first black woman police officer hired by the city of Portland. 
Thank you. She was one of the first five women to work in street patrols. A single mom who raised four girls in a hostile and dangerous community. She invested in us because she understood the world we were entering. I remember her words and they have guided me to this day. She told us that we would have to work 100% harder than everyone. Be a step above. When we asked why, she said it was because we were black and we were women. She understood that we would not be accepted in the world that saw us as less than. She knew that we would have to stand above just to be able to be acknowledged, to compete and excel in a world that did not think much of us. Years ago, I said the same line to my boys, Noah and Isaiah, they're up there in the balcony. I told them that they would have to work harder because of the color of their skin. Immediately, they railed back at me, instantly exhorting, that's not fair. A new generation, not accepting what I saw as a fact all my life. I paused. And I pondered what I had just said, realizing that I was trying to protect them from the impacts of being othered, like my mom had done decades before. My confident and strong boys, young men now, who excel because God has given them special gifts and talents. Every fiber of my being wants them to be seen and loved as their father and I love them. As Jesus loves them. Unfortunately, they know all too well what it looks like and feels like to be othered as they have navigated a polarized and vicious world. America has made some progress to improve our systems. However, we have so much more to do. Individually, we need to contribute by being intentional to increase our awareness, learn from each other, and be open to grow. I have hope that with Jesus' love and the power of the Holy Spirit, that one heart at a time can be changed so that our children do not live in a world where anyone is seen as less than. That is why I am committed to this work. Erica, thank you for sharing your story. It's powerful. It's important for us to hear the stories so that we can know and love one another. So thank you for sharing that. Erica has referenced what is known as othering. As she indicated, we want to provide some important context so that together we can do the work of becoming the beloved community that God intends. Othering involves focusing on difference and using difference to destroy our sense of similarity and connectedness to one another. Othering sets the stage for discrimination, bias, prejudice and persecution by reducing empathy and preventing our ability to know and love one another. 
As I read these descriptions, I would ask that you consider how you've been impacted by othering and how you might have othered people you've encountered. Othering can be as subtle as ignoring people's ideas, work, or opinions. Not giving people the benefit of the doubt. Failing to share important information. Avoidance. Withholding resources. Excluding people from meetings, social events, or recognition that is due them. Othering is based on a wide, wide range of attributes that Denise mentioned some of them uh, in her sermon, but they include things like age, disabilities, ethnicity, nationality, and race, gender identity, and sex, language, occupation, political affiliation, and religion. We as people are different. And as the beloved community leadership team began our work, we talked about how God has created us with diversity. And he's designed us for community. We're called to see and love the image of God in each person. We can use our differences as an opportunity to share and learn or we can use our differences as an excuse to build walls between us. When we highlight differences between groups of people to increase suspicion of them, to insult them, or to exclude them, we're going down the path known as othering. Instead, we have the opportunity, and I believe the calling, to honor the beauty of God's creation in all of humankind. Here's an example of othering. On Thursday night, uh, January 20th, I was watching the CBS News, and this story was shared. In 1949, a team from the famed all-black Tuskegee Airmen won the first Top Gun contest, a gunnery competition among pilots across the Air Force. But in the record book, it listed the winners for that year as unknown. Retired Lieutenant Colonel James Harvey, a now 98-year-old former fighter pilot who was part of that winning team, said, they knew who won, but they didn't want to recognize us. Harvey said, the trophy mysteriously got lost until in 2005 when a historian found it in a storage unit at the Air Force Museum. She said to her colleague, why isn't this on display? He said, we can't display everything, but that item will never be on display. The trophy is now on display. <laughs> and last week, a plaque commemorating the first Top Guns was unveiled at Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada, where the original competition was held. Harvey said, we proved that we were the best. And okay, it's now being shown. So let's think about this for a moment. The root causes of othering behavior. 
Let's look at 1 John 4.18. That's where it starts. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Fear ultimately leads us to othering, but love leads us into community. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have nothing to fear. Amen? We are loved by the God of the universe, as is every person. 1 John 4, 10 through 12 says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. As followers of Jesus, we can call on the power of the Holy Spirit and ask him to work within us, to reveal and raise our consciousness to the ways in which we participate in this hurtful and sinful behavior of othering, both inside and outside the church. We are called to love, reconcile, and stand in the gap of a polarized and weary world. As icons of the kingdom of God, we must come into the community despite our differences. As a beloved community, we can do this challenging and important work through vulnerability, vulnerability, can't say that word, vulnerability, vulnerability, (laughs) humility, See, that was vulnerable, right? <laughs> Humility and coming together to lament the hate and bigotry in our world that is in so many ways reflected in and through the church. The way forward will require us to be open to learn, grow, and reconcile the harms that have been done in our communities, particularly along racial lines. Now we are going to, we're going to do some reflections. And I wanted to say that we are the beloved community and we are excited to travel the journey from love to fear as a new hope church to cultivate an environment where we are accepting, compassionate, and aware. So now we're going to go into a portion um, of reflection Denise shared with us how Jesus was othered by his hometown. Imagine the crowd, angry, gnashing teeth, taunting and murderous. A crowd of people who were responding to and rejecting Jesus' message, wanting to push him off the proverbial cliff. There are so many conflicting messages in our world today along political, racial, and economic lines. Let's take a moment to reflect on the sermon and what we have talked about. So in this reflective time of our service, we're going to ask some questions. And then we're going to give you some time to reflect on those questions. Just in the stillness and letting God reveal what he wants to reveal on your heart. 
So our first question to you is, who are you in the crowd? What does other look like, sound like, feel like for you? What do you lament on the subject of othering? Mm -hmm. 